Good morning, everyone. <laughs> well, uh, my prayer for us this morning is that that song that we just sang would be true, that we leave this morning recognizing that whatever's going on in our life, whether it be good or whether it be bad, uh, that Jesus is truly better. Um, so, spoiler alert, that's, that's what we're going for this morning. <laughs> uh, if you're not sure who I am, my name is Andrew, and uh, I am one of the leaders here at part of West Village, and it is my great joy to welcome you if you are new with us, uh, and if you are here uh, and you've been here for a long time, it's also my great joy to welcome you. It's good to be family. Uh, almost every single week, I get to just go around the lobby and uh, and get to meet new people and, and get to see familiar faces, and I'm greatly reminded every single week how amazing it is that God has brought this group of people together, uh, and what a joy it is just to see the way that he's working uh, in your lives and in your lives to continue to shape me. And so I hope that if you are new, you get to experience a little piece of that this morning. Um, if you are new with us and uh, and you're not cool, a little bit sure what happens here, uh, we're going to be talking about the Bible or talking through the Bible uh, and just hoping and praying and allowing the Spirit of God to speak through that. And so if you do not have one of these, you can download one uh, on your app. You can also grab a hard copy here if you're more of like, a man, a tangible, I like to flip the pages type of person. Awesome. I'm totally that way too. Uh, my wife hates the fact that I collect books. She's like, download them. It's way cheaper, and it doesn't take up a ton of space in our house, um, and yet she still buys me books at Christmas time, so ha. <laughs> She's a good wife. Uh, if you are new with us today, um, well, we have been going through one of the particular books in the Bible called the book of Matthew, and Matthew is one of four books that deals with the life and teachings of Jesus, and uh, one might describe it a little bit like a biography, but if we take that concept of biography and we try and, like, without any kind of discernment, apply it to this, this book, we're, we're probably going to miss some stuff because uh, in the ancient world, our modern uh, definition of biography just wouldn't fit. Uh, ancient writers were more concerned with drawing out themes from someone's lives and less about chronologically recording events. And so uh, one of the, probably the best contemporary examples that we have when we talk about this a lot is this TV show called This Is Us. Um, you know, This Is Us is, is a great show, uh, highly recommend. It's, it centers around a family called the Pearsons. Uh, but what's really interesting about it is it's not this sequential chronological story um, what happens each week is, is the directors and the, the filmers and all the people who are kind of involved in that project, they pull together different scenes from these, this, this family's life. And so you get scenes from when the parents were kids and you get scenes from when the kids were kids and teenagers and even when their parents or grandparents. And, and all of this helps to develop individual themes. But we know if you listen to interviews from the actors or the writers or the directors that there's this overarching story that they are trying to tell. And in the same way, this is exactly what the gospel writers are concerned with. They are in each little portion of the Bible uh, that they're writing, trying to give you little snippets about who God is, uh, who Jesus is, and what he's come to do. And yet, they're also trying to drive an over all theme. And so uh, that's something a little bit for us to kind of pay attention to. That's why we go through verse by verse, because we actually believe that Matthew had a particular picture that he was trying to paint. And if we pull things out of context, we might actually miss that. 
So if you have your Bibles with you, I'm going to invite you to open them up. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 8 today. Um, and we're going to start, just remind us where we, where, we're at, where we were last week by looking at Matthew chapter 8, verse 1. So it says this, when Jesus came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. So probably if you're like, well, I've just stepped into this, you're like, okay, what was he doing up on the mountainside? Well, uh, what happened is Jesus had been going around proclaiming this incredible, uh, significant message. It's a good news message. Uh, and kind of a little tangent, speaking of some good news today, uh, we have some things to celebrate, some good news things in our church. Uh, so uh, Jen and Justin, are you guys in here this morning? Jen and Justin, maybe? Yeah, over there back. Jen and Justin, a couple weeks ago, just had a brand spanking new baby right off the assembly line. Uh, that's good, right? We can celebrate that. We have a creator God. Uh, and then Robin and Murray uh, just got married yesterday. I don't think they're here. They're hopefully not here. But uh, yeah, let's celebrate that as a church family. Those are good news things. So Jesus has been going around proclaiming this good news message that God has stepped into our world to establish his rule and reign. And people are called to respond to that, and, and several do. And so Jesus takes these people up onto this mountaintop, and he starts to teach them, this is actually what God's kingdom looks like. And he tells them all about it. But he doesn't just stop there. Jesus isn't just about giving us verbal information. He comes down from the mountain. And this is where Chris kind of unpacked things for us starting last week. And he starts to interact with different people and demonstrate exactly what the kingdom looks like. And I think it's important for us just to note that there is an intrinsically go and tell nature to the gospel, this good news. But there's also reality that there is a show nature. You know, when you're a kid, you do show and tell, right? Bring something to school that you're excited about. And then you explain it to people. And the gospel is a little bit like that. There are some of you here today, and you are so excited to go out and show the gospel. You're like, man, Jesus is so good. I want to give you that picture. I'm just going to live in such a way that it just demonstrates how good his kingdom is. And to that, Jesus says, you can actually explain it to people. It's not just a show thing. Like People can look at you and be like, oh, that's really cool. But why is it important? It actually requires us to, to talk about it, to tell it, to explain it, to give context to what we're doing. But there's some of us who kind of fall on the other side of the spectrum, and, and we're like, man, people just need to know the truth. And we look around, and we see problems, and we're like, man, you just need to know about Jesus. And we are so excited to tell, but someone looks at our lives like, this kingdom, this good news that you're talking about, I don't, I don't see any good news in the way that you live. Jesus doesn't leave us room for one or the other. He actually calls us to both. And so what happens is Jesus comes down from the mountain, and he has not only proclaimed this incredible, beautiful message that God's kingdom is here, but he starts to show the people around him just what that kingdom looks like. First person he interacts with that's recorded in Matthew's book is this uh, man who has a disease called leprosy. And leprosy is a curable disease now, but back then it was uh, deadly and people were very afraid of it because it was an infectious disease. 
And uh, there wasn't just medical issues along with this disease. There was huge societal ostracism that would come from it. So if you were a leper, you were basically uh, shunned off to this little colony. You weren't allowed in the walls of the city. In fact, if someone came near you, you had to yell out, unclean, unclean. No one wanted to be around these people. They smelled bad. Their flesh was rotting because they couldn't feel, and so they got all of these infections and cuts and things. And no one wanted to touch them. And listen to what Jesus does. He goes, and this man says, Jesus, if you wish to do it, you can make me clean. Not you can heal me, but you can make me clean. And you hear the yearning in his voice. He's not just simply saying, you can make me better. He's saying, you can restore me into this community. I can become one of these people again. And Jesus does something that's so completely and utterly revolutionary. He goes up to this person and he touches him. It'd be like the equivalent of someone going downtown and, and you're in like the worst possible place and you're meeting this person and you can tell, man, this, this person hasn't showered in a long time. They probably don't have a home. You know, there's this social anathema around them, this social ostracization. Like no one wants to be around this person and yet you go and you just give them a hug and like, like I don't even care how grubby you are. Like I'm going to kiss you on the cheek. Be completely and utterly ridiculous in that this is what Jesus does. Next, Jesus meets the centurion. Centurion is like a captain in the Roman army. He's got like a hundred guys underneath him. Uh, so you can imagine in a Jewish occupied territory, not a super popular dude. And the centurion comes to Jesus and he says, man, I, I love this servant of mine. Uh, can you heal him? And Jesus says, yeah. Again, like no one in Jesus' community would have been like, hey, I'm going to invite this guy over for dinner. And yet Jesus goes and interacts with him in such a way that says, you are made in the image of God. You are loved and you are valued. And God's kingdom is also for you. So we're going to continue from there. If you have your Bibles, again, back to Matthew chapter 8, and we're going to start in verse 14 says this, when Jesus came into Peter's house, he saw Peter's mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her. She got up and began to wait on him. And then in the, as the evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him and he drove out the spirits with a word and healed all the sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities and he bore our diseases." So once again, uh, Jesus comes and he starts to interact with this person, Peter's mother-in-law. This seems kind of on the surface, like nothing too weird. Like Peter's one of Jesus' followers. You know, he's probably popping into his house and, oh, okay, this, this lady's sick. There's a couple of things I want to draw attention to first, though. One is that in, in all the cases before this, people asked Jesus to heal them. In this case, no one's coming to Jesus and saying, hey, can you heal my servant? Or, hey, can you make me clean? Jesus simply sees a need, and he chooses to meet that. And, and in this, I think Matthew is giving us a picture of the graciousness of God and the goodness of God. There's all these passages in the Old Testament that say things like, God sends rain on the white, righteous and the wicked. 
And, and what's going on here is Matthew's actually giving us a picture of how Jesus is God in the same way that God is gracious whether we are deserving or not, whether we ask him to or not, Jesus is gracious. Now, you know, we, we don't have necessarily the same outlook on life as someone in the first century would, uh, but there is this really interesting dynamic in the, the first, uh, second temple Judaism, which was kind of the dominant religious practice of that time, what we call it today. Uh, so they had this temple, and this was like the centerpiece of where Jewish, good Jewish people would come and worship God. And the temple had a couple of different areas. And so they had this outer court, which was for like the Gentiles and women. And then you had this like holier inner court that was for like good uh, Jewish men who uh, like were clean and, and in good standing. And then you had this like holy place, which was reserved only for priests. But the, the place of worship that where people were supposed to come and meet with God, this holy place was exclusive. And so what's so interesting is that Matthew, I mean, he has an abundance of stories that he can pull from. I mean, right after he's talking about Peter's mom, he's saying, man, there's a lineup of people coming to be healed and freed from demon possession. So why does he choose these three stories? What is the thing that they have in common? Unclean, Gentile, woman. The people who are on the outside of society. And what does Jesus do? He comes into their life and he not only heals their ailments, but restores them and invites them back in. And he's saying something to us. He's saying, my kingdom, this is an inclusive kingdom. There is no out and in. If you come and you're willing to surrender your life and follow me and make me your king, you are in. I think if, if we look around in our own hearts, we look around in our culture, uh, this message is not one that would be uh, hard to jump on. I mean, I, I don't know about you, but I don't feel like I would have any problem going around to my friends, whether they're Christians or not, they might be Buddhists, they might be atheists, and saying, man, I think a good picture of like what life should be is this inclusive picture where uh, people aren't pushed aside because of their race or because of their, uh, their diseases or because of their gender. I mean, this is a message that our society loves. And I think for most of us, that we love. And that's a really, really, really good thing. We love the picture of the kingdom. I mean, let's, let's get more of that. What, what else is going on here? It says, when evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him, and he drove out the spirits with the word, and he healed all the sick. Again, this picture of restoration. I think that's the best word that we can use, restoration. People come, and they're restored, whether it's uh, socially they're restored, whether it's physically they're restored. There's this... Uh, really kind of weird thing that I think for, for many of us, if not most of us, uh, you know, it just kind of is a little bit awkward. It says that there are people who are coming with demons. And I mean, Jesus is very clear in this passage. Like there are people who have physical, uh, psychological needs that are coming and being healed, but there's whole other who are being demon possessed. That's weird, right? Like how many of us go around and 
like think on a regular basis, like, hey, there's some other kind of spiritual realm that's influencing and attacking, and maybe what's going on in my life might have something to do with that. And yet the Bible makes it clear that this is the case. One of my favorite authors, uh, named C.S. Lewis, he writes this in, in his phenomenal book. And if you're ever curious about just kind of digging into this idea of you know, spiritual forces. I think this is a, a fantastic book to read. Uh, it's fictional, but he, he outlines this conversation between a senior demon and a junior demon, and, and he just has such great insight into the realities of how the spiritual realm often interacts with us as human beings. But he says this at the very beginning of his book. Uh, it's called The Screwtape Letters. He says, there are two equal and opposite errors in which our race can fall about the devils or demons. One is to disbelieve in their existence. Uh, Just imagine for me, if you will, that there is some nefarious force out there that wants to see your life destroyed in some way, that wants to see you incapacitated to live the life that God has for you. Well, what is the best way to do that? How effective would that be if you didn't even believe that that existed? you would never know what hit you. You would never know what was coming for you. But there's a second error that can happen, and this is probably a little bit more true of the church. It says, the other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. And so there's this this other way that we can go in this where we, we start to look around and we say, man, my foot hurts. It's a demon. My wife is mad at me. Obviously, she's possessed. (laughs) I could go further, but uh, (laughs) here's here's the, the problem is that, you know, we have to acknowledge the fact that there is a Satan, an accuser, and there are spiritual forces out there who desperately do not want us to live out the life of the kingdom. And they're going to find any single way that they can to oppress us. But there's also this great, great news. They don't have final authority over us. Jesus does. Yeah, amen. That they do not have the final word, that Jesus comes with his authority and says, hey, you have no place here. And this is exactly what we see. And these people who have been tormented, twisted, are restored. And I look at this picture and I say, man, yes, Jesus, yes, this is a great picture. I want to come and see every single person in Victoria, every single family, every single marriage, every single racial tension, reach this picture of restoration. And I think our culture actually desires this at some level. It's why things like hashtag me too well up to the surface. People look around and they say, there is injustice. I mean, it's easy for us to be like, this is overblown. It's a bunch of kids on Twitter, whatever. But here's the reality. They are actually dealing with something that is true in our society. I mean, statistically speaking, one in every three or one in every four women have experienced some kind of sexual abuse, sexual assault, sexual harassment in this room. Look around. Maybe 50% of the people in this room 
been sexually abused. Maybe a couple hundred people in this room, say half of them women, 100. 25 women in this room have experienced that. And I look at that and I say, I long for a world where that never, ever has to happen again. You hear these stories, terrible, terrible stories. I was reading through, uh, uh, I was reading through the National Post and uh, and there's this uh, thing happening in Ontario. There's this person, a part of the government who's supposed to be an advocate for kids who are getting taken into the foster system. And they're telling this story about this, this girl who went through the foster system, Aboriginal girl, uh, tons of uh, you know, brokenness in her family, and ends up dead. And I look and I say, man, there is a, a systemic brokenness in the First Nations communities of our culture, and I long for a day when that is no more. There are people in the States who are looking around, they're saying, man, there are people who are being discriminated against. There are people who are being killed simply because of their skin color, and that's not okay. And we say, yes, this needs to stop. Here's the thing. Matthew agrees with that. He says, there is a picture of the kingdom of restoration that is good. But the things that we are doing, they're just making it worse, not better. So he brings us to this quote from an Old Testament prophet named Isaiah. He took up our infirmities and he bore our diseases. But that isn't just him saying, oh, look, here's Jesus fulfilling something. He's actually calling us to look back at this passage. And so if you have your Bibles, you can whip them over to Isaiah. It's like kind of halfway in the middle there. Um, Chapter 53 of Isaiah, we're going to start in verse 4. So Isaiah writes this, Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. That's that same passage that Matthew is, is using. He translates it a little bit different. What's interesting is that Matthew kind of leaves us as a cliffhanger because if we read further, it says, uh, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, We are healed. We are all like sheep that have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. What's Matthew doing here is he's inviting us, he's inviting his first readers to go back and say, what is Isaiah saying about this? How is it that Jesus is actually able to heal these people? He takes the sin and the brokenness of the world, the ultimate problem upon himself. Here's the thing. I think if we go around and we tell people, there is this incredible message of the kingdom, a message of equality, a message of restoration, everyone's going to say, yeah, I want that. But we don't want a king. You don't get to the end of the Bible where it says in Revelation chapter 21 that there is no more sin, no more sorrow, no more suffering. 
unless you first go through the cross. And so we're invited to start to think through what is the proper response. Our our tendency is to try and figure it out ourselves. And and we have actually an entire culture that uh, thinks about positivity. Uh, Shannon and I have been uh, watching these uh, documentaries on this fire festival. I don't know if you've heard of it. Uh, It was this huge, epic, like, uh, music festival that was supposed to take place in the Bahamas and turned into this a complete disaster. Uh, the people who were running it were crooked and didn't know what they were doing. And all these people spent thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars to go out to the Bahamas and ended up being stranded there. And uh, one of the ways that they promoted this thing was that they had these people called social media influencers, these people who are up on Facebook and Twitter and YouTube and uh, Instagram, uh, all those kind of places. And, and people are like, man, these, these guys have something that draws me to them. Like they say something interesting, they have good commentary, uh, they're good looking, whatever. And, and these people have thousands, sometimes millions of followers. And so uh, what these, uh, these uh, people, and it was a brilliant strategy, uh, they said, man, we're going to get this message out by having these people uh, basically give a shout out to, to their, fo- their following. Uh, I remember listening to all of these interviews with these social media influencers, these personalities, and people were like, what, what is your brand? Essentially, what is it that people are drawn to? And kept hearing this word, positivity, positivity, positivity. What is positivity? I mean, I think if we try and break that down a little bit, it's this notion of restoration, this notion of the good life. A particular girl names, uh, I think her name was Alyssa Lynch. Uh, she had this uh, account, and, and so she was going to this fire festival, and, uh, and all these people show up, and they're like these FEMA tents that are rained out, and these mattresses that are like basically destroyed. There's no food, there's no water. It's like a complete and utter disaster. But she was one of the lucky people that got to go to a mansion on this island. And she's sitting there and she's looking at her social media account. All these things are coming in, like people are suffering, people are having a tough time. And and her positivity worked for her in that moment, but it was not going to change the circumstances for any other person on that island. She had the means to at least have even maybe one or two more people go up there and, and say, hey, you know, I have a space. We can fit some people into this place. And her positivity stops at her having the good life. And ultimately, what Jesus has come to do is not primarily about physical healing. Although we do believe that a reality of the coming kingdom is restoration in all of its glory. It's not primarily just to set people free from demons is primarily to invite people to follow the king. We can love the kingdom. But the problem is, is that if we don't actually follow and love the king, we will never, ever get to see the result of the kingdom. Matthew records in chapter 8, following this, starting in verse 18, that there are two uh, examples of people who come and respond to Jesus' message. 
says that when Jesus saw the crowd around him, that he gave orders to cross over to the other side of the lake. Then a teacher of the law came to him and said, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus looked at him and replied, foxes have dens, birds have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. Another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus told him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. There's two different ways that uh, people respond to Jesus' message. What's interesting is that this first guy, he comes up and the first thing he does is address Jesus as teacher. Now, if you read some of the uh, commentaries, some of the scholars who actually spend, you know, hours and hours and years of their lives studying this, they will note that if you look at the rest of the examples of people coming up and talking to Jesus, the people who call him teacher are the people who are not in, who don't really get it. And so this shows right off the bat that this guy, he, he hasn't quite bought in yet. He likes what Jesus is saying. It's like, man, this is, this is good. Like, uh, this is some good stuff here. I want you to be my teacher. Like, I want to learn some of your things so that maybe I can try to adjust my life a little bit. And Jesus looks at him and he says, hey, this isn't just about a few tweaks in your life. This is actually going to cost your entire life. So what does he do? He says, man, you know who's not going to bring about the kingdom? Birds. They're going to be comfortable in their house. Foxes. You know, they're going to be comfortable in their den. But if you want to bring about the kingdom, you have to, you have to be what I am. You just say, like, I don't even have a house. That's how committed I am to seeing this happen. Matthew doesn't tell us what this man's response is, and it's sort of an invitation for us to look at our lives. And some of you are here today, and you've probably experienced a little taste of the kingdom. Maybe there's been a community group that's come around you and served you, and you're like, man, there's these people, and they love each other really well, and I like that. And yet, for you, Jesus is still teacher. You want to grab a bit of this and a bit of that and say, hey, I think if I have this and this, I can accomplish the kingdom. And Jesus says, no. There is no way you can possibly ever do enough to bring this about. The very least, think about the fact that you might have to give up where you live, where you sleep. I mean, how many people would go camping in the wilderness for the kingdom of God? And there's a few of you are like, yeah, that's me. I'm in. I'm backpacking. And there's a few of you like, there's not a pillow top mattress. I'm out. Like, we're going to do a leader retreat at Kiwanos. There's going to be some people who are going to come and be like, uh, not about that life. A bunk bed? I did my time when I was 12. Thank you. Jesus paints a picture for us of discipleship, and discipleship is not something that is safe, and it's not something that is easy. It requires sacrifice. And I want to speak a little bit to parents for a moment, because I think sometimes we as parents, and I'm a new parent, so I'm going to probably need you to have this talk with me at some point. We want to, we want to protect our kids. We want to paint a picture for them that Christianity is safe, uh, that it's easy, that it's accessible. 
And we were actually deceiving our kids and we're teaching them Jesus is just a good teacher. I was a youth pastor for five years and I remember this one particular student, her name was Rachel. And Rachel struggled and struggled and, and her parents, I, I didn't get her, her parents were like faithfully part of our church gathering. Her grandparents were part of our church gathering. They had been missionaries in Africa. And I sat with her one day and it was just wrestling through this with her. And she said, listen, you know, my parents do this Sunday thing all the time, but I go over to the house of my uh, friend's parents who don't know Jesus and they live better lives than my parents do. They're more generous. They're more loving. There is nothing that is different apart from the fact that once a week, we go to church on Sunday. We go to a gathering on Sunday. We have so domesticated what it looks like to follow Jesus that it is literally turning some of our kids away and they're looking for something that gives them meaning because they see the need for the kingdom, but we've inoculated them to the actual means. We've been reading this book together as a staff team and it's called Gaining by Losing. The author, J.D. Greer, tells this story that he'd heard from another pastor this pastor had a man in his uh, church come up to him one Sunday, and the man said, I'm really concerned for my daughter. Uh, my daughter's been getting in with a bad crowd. She's making some poor decisions in her life, and I'm really, really worried. Um, and, and, and this pastor said to him, well, uh, you know, tell me a little bit about what your discipleship looks like. And he's like, well, you know, every Sunday, every single week, we are here. And, and the pastor looked at him and said, okay. Do you serve anywhere? It's like, well, no. So why don't you start with that? Show your daughter that following Jesus actually calls you to something. This man uprooted his family uh, for a summer. They went and did a mission trip. And he said, we came back and my daughter's life was transformed. She met Jesus because she could start to see what he looked like in the sacrifice and the adventure and the calling to die to himself and get rid of their comfort. Jesus met her in that place. Parents, if you are here today and you have never done this with your kids, I want to compel, not compel, but implore you, do not domesticate the gospel to them. It is dangerous. It is sacrificial. It is an adventure of the best kind. And it is not going to be done if we stay comfortable. There's a second response to Jesus, says this other disciple, he gets it, right? He calls him Lord. And then he says, first, let me go and bury my father. Now, there's a couple of ways to understand this request. One is that his father has just died, and he's the oldest son. And so he has certain societal and religious obligations to his family. Pretty reasonable stuff, right? Like, uh, my dad dies. Uh, I'm going to probably drop what I'm doing so that I can put on a funeral and be there for my family. There's a second way to understand this, that... This man recognizes that he has a, a, a position as an oldest son in a, in a Jewish family that he needs to follow his father's leadership and, and care for his family until his father dies and he's free to make that decision for himself, you know, close things off and then he can go off. And yet Jesus says, it's time to get unreasonable. These things, they, they can't come before following me. 
I think for many of us, we say, man, Jesus, I know you're Lord, and I really want to follow you, but just let me do this first. Just let me do that first. When Shannon and I were, uh, were engaged, we started having this conversation about what we felt that God was calling us to. Um, and so I had this, just this pull at the time towards church planting, and Shannon had a pull very much away from church planting. Um, and so we started having this conversation, and, and finally I just said, listen, I know this, this couple, they planted a church in Victoria. Uh, we're going to go visit my, my parents for Christmas. Why don't we just pop over to their house and just pick their brain a little bit and, and hear a little bit of their story. And so we came and uh, sat down with, it ended up being Chris and Kelly, and we sat in their, in their living room, not in their living room, in their kitchen. Kelly was just kind of doing some stuff, and Shannon was, was saying, man, you know, like, we're about to get married, and I, I want to establish this great firm foundation for our family. I want to have, a, like, a firm financial foundation where, you know, we have, like, a house, and, and I also want to have this, like, first year where we just build this, like, really good relationship foundation. And Kelly was just sharing a little bit of their story. They jumped into ministry. They had kids early. And Shannon was like, wasn't that really, really hard? And I'm going to paraphrase this because I don't remember exactly what Kelly said, but it was something along the lines of this. She said, listen, Shannon, all these things that you think are firm foundations, she's like, the, those foundations are great, but I would not want to have any other foundation for my marriage than to trust Jesus. So it was stretching. It was hard, but we learned to throw ourselves at the feet of Jesus. And that changed our lives. I would say that the Spirit worked in such a way through those words that that is why we are here today. The things that we were concerned about, the things that we wanted to accomplish, they weren't necessarily unreasonable things. But there are things that we started to elevate above Jesus. So I want to ask you, what are those reasonable things that are part of your life? What are some of those things that you are saying to Jesus, like, let me just get this done, let me just do this, that you need to let go of? Jesus, you know, I I want to teaching my kids how to be on mission, but I need to give them a comfortable, firm foundation first. Jesus, I, I want to be generous with my finances, but, you know, I, I got to be a good steward and, and take care of the needs of my own family. Jesus, I, I really want to be on mission, but I need my downtime. How am I supposed to pour out to all these other people if I'm not refreshed? So one is, that one was actually very personal to me. So uh, this one, this one's really, uh, I asked Shannon, I sat down and as I was working through this passage and, and I kind of explained uh, what God was kind of revealing to me in this. And I said, uh, hon, what do I say to Jesus that I think is reasonable and yet I'm putting before him? And she said, babe, you, uh, you think that everything has to go to your plan. You're a structure person, and you're like, okay to follow Jesus as long as it fits into your structure. And as soon as it doesn't, you have a flip out, and it's like, okay, Jesus, that's enough. You, you, you can't call me to this now because I didn't plan for it. It's not in the calendar. It's not in the budget. And yet, Jesus says, I'm calling you to be a little unreasonable.
Maybe you're here today and you're, you're not sure about Jesus. You like the idea of the kingdom. And Jesus says to you, you don't get the kingdom without the king. And you're like, but Jesus, like, I, I can't give up these things. Maybe uh, for you, it's this idea of freedom. Man, I got to have the ability to just define who I am. And Jesus says, no, you don't, because you will never truly live out who you are supposed to be unless you let me define it for you. Jesus, I've got to be the person who says what's right and what's wrong, who gets to be loved and and who doesn't. And, And Jesus says, actually, I am the embodiment of love. If you want to learn what love is, if you want to learn what right and wrong is, kind of follow me. You'll never figure it out on your own. As I've continued to figure, work, work through this passage, I've also realized that there are things that we hold on to that they might not even be like positive things, but they're things that, that are, are really deep entrenched into our lives. And so maybe for you today, that the thing that you're holding on to is pain or hurt or anger. And you're, you're looking at Jesus and you're saying, man, Jesus, I, I want to follow you, but you don't know what this person did to me. You don't know how badly they hurt me. And Jesus says, yeah, I do. Because you put me on the cross. Your shame and your guilt, your anger and your hatred, that fell to me. It might be perfectly reasonable to be hurt and to be angry, and yet Jesus says, I was unreasonable for you. This is a quote by a, a, a scholar named Richard France. He says, The kingdom of heaven apparently involves a degree of fanaticism which is willing to disrupt the normal rhythms of life. And what he's saying here is there's a degree of us looking a little crazy that we are called to from following Jesus, that we as Christians actually look a little bit nuts because we do things that just do not make sense because they are completely unreasonable. And so we find as we come to the end of our time here today that Jesus has invited us not simply to a vision of the kingdom, but to the vision of the king. As Isaiah said, he took on our sin and our suffering upon himself as by his stripes that you and I are healed, that you and I are restored. If you're here today and you have never experienced the love of this God, the unreasonable God who said, I have been content in my heaven. I have great community among myself as a trinity, and yet I am going to forsake all that because of my great unreasonable love for you. Then I want to invite you to come and know him, to know that he has this beautiful restoration that can only happen if you are willing to die to yourself and follow him. If you're here today and you've been calling Jesus Lord and yet you've given a list of excuses, I want to invite you to an unreasonable life of faith. We get to see and celebrate that there are people in our church family who are becoming 
unreasonable for Jesus. I hear stories about a family who says, man, we're going to take out a mortgage so that we can actually build an extension on our house so that we can uh, offer foster care because our foster system is so overworked. And this family has four adopted kids. Four adopted, they have done their time. It is not a re- unreasonable for them to say, hey, we, you know, we've done it. Like, and yet, saying we're going to get even more unreasonable because this is what the Spirit of God is doing in our life. There's families in our church who are chopping up their yard to put in garden plots just simply so that they can get to know their neighbors. There are families in our church who are saying, Man, we're going to switch which school our kids go to. We're going to take them from a Christian school and put them in a public school so that we can teach them to be missionaries and that we can be missionaries with them. And so let me ask you, how unreasonable are you going to be when Jesus comes and says, come and follow me? Maybe it means leaving your house and your comfortable neighborhood to move into a place that needs restoration. Maybe it means uh, taking your kids out of the school that they're in to move them into a school that is tons of needs and you're saying, man, I just, I want to get in there. And I want to demonstrate the kingdom there. Maybe it means taking your family on a mission trip to Mexico instead of the all-inclusive vacation. I want to invite the band to come up as we finish off here. I don't know what unreasonable looks like for you. Uh, but uh, Shannon and I have had to ask this question. There is this incredible community group. Uh, I want to shout out to Souk CG or Souk CG in the house. Yeah. A couple of weeks ago, I got to meet with a couple of the leaders from the Souk community group. And uh, this community group has this desire to see the kingdom of God come to bear in their town. And they're getting excited. They're thinking, man, these are the things that we are going to get to do to see Jesus come and be present to our friends who would never normally get to know him. And they asked me, they said, man, we want to plant a church here, Andrew. Would you ever consider moving out to Souk? Came home and talked to Shannon. And I said, babe, I had this conversation today. Okay, what was it about? What do you think about moving to Souk and planting a church? Well, if God tells us we have to do it, then we'll do it. <laughs> you know, here's the reality. I don't know if God's going to call us to, to do that, but there's a lot of good things in our life right now. We feel sad. I love what I get to do as part of West Village. I love the position that I'm in. You know, we have a good life. Uh, we have, we're starting to see some really fruitful ministry in our neighborhood. Uh, lots of really reason at some point, if God calls us there, are we willing to get unreasonable for Jesus? And in a minute, we're going to respond because Jesus got unreasonable for us. We're going to sing some praises and just recognize how good he is. We are going to uh, get to give our offering because all the work of you, and then we are going to take communion, and this cracker represents the broken body of Jesus. A holy God, perfect in every way, does not need us at all, and yet he goes to the cross and takes on our brokenness into himself. We dip it into the grape juice or the wine, and that represents his shed blood on our behalf. So unreasonable. 
And yet because he did that, we get Revelation 21. We get restoration. We get the kingdom. Let me close in prayer. Father, I'm so excited to see the transforming work that you have for the city of Victoria. And I'm so thankful that you did not leave us to wallow in our sin, in our brokenness, but that you came and healed us. And Father, I just ask that you would continue to restore us, that you would call us to yourself, and that you teach us what it means to submit to you with all of our heart, that we would truly, truly, truly believe that you are better than any comfort, better than any victory, better than any sorrow. That you continue to use us as West Village Church and the other churches of Victoria here. Amen.